This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there. Jane, when you think of ancient Egypt, mm-hmm. what comes to mind? Uh, mummies. Mummies? Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. I think of uh, Pyramid and mm-hmm. Cleopatra with her crazy black eyeliner. and I guess everyone wore black eyeliner. Yeah. And it wasn't so crazy. I think it actually helped deflect the sun or it served some sort of very practical purpose. It wasn't just cosmetic. Oh, okay. I'm wearing mine today to look cool <laughs> and super goth. Not to deflect the sun. Not to deflect oh, okay. the sun. It's you know, it's kind of wintry and hazy outside yeah, that's today. True. The point being <laughs> that all that we think about ancient Egypt and all of the Egyptian lore that we know mm-hmm. and everything we know about mummies and pharaohs and Tut and Cleopatra and Ramses, we take it for granted, I think. But there was a really long period of time that no one really knew what ancient Egypt was all about. Like yeah, they they it, could see these things with mm-hmm. their eyes, but they were mysteries to them. Yeah, and they knew this was a huge civilization, obviously, but we didn't really know the secrets of what happened during the, the, the time that it reigned and was so powerful because... Uh, uh, the language was sort of forgotten, and the and so the inscriptions that were written about it uh, could not be translated. And language aside, it was almost like the fascination we have today with with Mars and outer space, and imagining that there may be people out there. It's a good analogy. It's popular culture to us because there's no scientific or historical basis. Mm -hmm. And that's how Egypt was. It was very much a subject of popular culture. And Mm -hmm. while that may strike you as funny, if you're sitting in in school today, maybe, and you got a 30-minute lecture about one of the pharaohs, Mm -hmm. um, imagine that back during the time that Napoleon was in power in France, people dabbled in Egypt. People collected parts of Mm -hmm. Egypt. And they would they would buy like collectors or collectors items from Egypt themselves and like the Egyptians who didn't quite know what they're worth, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that we should mention too, is that not even the Egyptians knew what their culture yeah. was about. It was right. all just just fun and games, really, that you could go into these pyramids and you could find gold or you could find mummies or mm-hmm. you could find artifacts and, and pawn it off and, and make some change and and that all changed once 
Napoleon invaded Egypt. That's and right. That's so funny to me that Egypt and France have such a strong tie as far as deciphering their history, but that's kind of how it went. Yeah, it's interesting. It's pretty cool, actually, to look at what Napoleon did when he was trying to get power um, over the strategic position where, where Egypt was. He gathered this... He, had, he took his soldiers, but he also took a troop of academics, basically, scientists, chemists, even zoologists, and he called them up and he's like, this is a super secret mission and just say that you're doing this for the good of France and we're going to, you know, study the culture and see what's going on. And I would just love it if, like, the president called me up today and was like, Jane, we need you for a secret academic mission and we need you to come to this mysterious land with this, that has this mysterious civilization and find out what it's all about. It must have been amazing. Yeah. And Napoleon was nothing if not a shrewd leader. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't just plan to invade yeah. Egypt. He planned a very thorough infiltration. So mm-hmm. this group of academics, it was called the Institute of Egypt, they set up camp alongside the soldiers. And unfortunately, things went a little bad military-wise. Yeah. And the French were essentially cut off. All their ships were destroyed. They had no way out. And they were sort of stranded in Egypt for it's, about 18 years. Yeah, it's true. It's interesting because he, when Napoleon landed with his troops and stuff, he, he was successful for a little while. He captured Alexandria. He won the Battle of the Pyramids. But then, um, sort of by accident, this British uh, general or um, admiral, I should say, uh, Horatio Nelson, saw his, his ships off the coast. And uh, they didn't have um, Napoleon in it, but he destroyed the, the ships themselves, so they were stranded there. Um, Napoleon and his troops. And there's a lot that you could accomplish in 18 years. Mm-hmm. And they really did. They they ended up writing a multi-volume work all about Egypt. But before that ever happened, they had to build reinforcements. They had to build forts. They had to build strongholds. Yeah. And when the soldiers were at work, they were tearing down walls of an old temple, I think, mm-hmm. and starting to erect a new fort in its place. And a soldier stumbled across this shiny piece of black basalt, and it had all of these inscriptions in it, and there were three distinct types of inscriptions. And he mm-hmm. thought, I don't know what this is, but it looks important. That's so right, yeah. <laughs> he took it over to the scholars, which was really handy, and they couldn't quite tell what it was either for a while. Mm-hmm. But they called this piece of basalt the Rosetta Stone because it was found in the town of Rosetta. Yeah. And it wasn't huge, but it wasn't small either. It was sort of about the size of maybe a small coffee table, and mm-hmm. it was pretty heavy because it was stone, maybe like a, a medium-sized LCD television or something like yeah. that, if you think about it in those terms. So they thought it, they knew it was really important, even though they couldn't quite figure out why. Um but so they wanted to hang on to it um, first and for- foremost for Napoleon. But when the English obviously had their hold over over France in that area, uh, the English were really adamant that they hand it over. Yeah. So by the Treaty of Capitulation, they had to mm-hmm. give it over to the British. But the French were pretty quick thinking. So they made some copies of yeah. it, first of all. And that, that was smart. really, really smart. Mm-hmm. So the British had the original Rosetta Stone. The French had copies of it. And both camps set to work trying to figure out what it was. And, and this is pretty, it was pretty hard. Like, when I when I learned about the Rosetta Stone back in school, I guess I just learned the basic facts that it, it was the key to figuring out hieroglyphics. But it's interesting to look at the history because it actually took them quite a while to actually figure out and crack the code. It really did. And it had three different types of writing on it. That's right. It had Greek, which was relatively well known at the time by academics, and uh, Demotic, and, which is sort of a subset of hieroglyphics, and hieroglyphics itself. So these three different strata mm-hmm. of languages, and we know from the Greek, that was the easiest to interpret because, yeah. like you said, scholars did know Greek, and the Reverend Stephen Weston actually interpreted that in 
April 1802. Mm-hmm. We realize that the stone was dated from March 27th, 196 BC. What scholars later found out is that it was a one in a series of Stella, essentially, like a religious or governmental decree mm-hmm. written on stone. And these were very, very common in Egypt. It was almost like um, the Ten Commandments being on a tablet. Mm-hmm. This was what people did. I mean, the Egyptians later had papyrus, but for the time being, you know, yeah. they were putting their writing on stone. Mm-hmm. And there were so many that this one, the Rosetta Stone, really is not that significant in mm-hmm. the grand scheme of things. The actual message on it is not that the riveting. The message on it is not that riveting. I think, basically, it talks about how the fair Pharaoh is a good person. The Mm -hmm. Pharaoh respects the gods. The Pharaoh is humble. Ergo, let's all honor the Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. But it was the key to deciphering hieroglyphics that makes it so memorable today. So here's what happened with hieroglyphics. Back when Egypt was its own entity and it didn't really have any other outside parties bothering it, Mm -hmm. it used the language of hieroglyphics. And this was a very spiritual and and reverent sort of way of writing. So, yeah, no, not everybody knew how to write hieroglyphics. Like it was reserved to like um, the particular carvers and um, it had a specific purpose. Like it was either for religious writing or like governmental writing. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they decided that they needed a more pedestrian language that everyone could use and everyone could write on. Mm -hmm. So then we have of erratic. Yeah, and, and this was easier, right, to, to write on, like, papyrus, you know, and it was smoother to, like, it was sort of like a cursive version. There you go. Mm-hmm. And the same process continued, and by then we have different parties coming into Egypt and different cultures influencing them. We have demotic, which evolves next, and that's a simplification of heratic, simplification of hieroglyphics. And then finally, when Christians start coming into mm-hmm. Egypt and the culture and religion drastically change, we have Coptic. Yeah, and this uses, Coptic uses the Greek alphabet mostly, but then there are some things that the Greek, Greek alphabet had that the Egyptian language didn't, so they incorporated some sort of hieroglyphic-like characters in it. Exactly. So the reason that the Rosetta Stone had three different languages on it is because they wanted to make sure everyone could read the stone. Mm -hmm. The decree was public for everyone. And like we said, not that interesting a decree, but very public nonetheless. So after Weston translated the Greek, the next step was trying to go ahead and do the demotic, because mm-hmm. that seemed the next easiest to do. Right. And there were two men who did that, relatively contemporary of one another, and that was Johann David Ackerblad and Antoine Sylvester de Sacy. That's right. And these people sort of knew Coptic relatively well. Like, they, they had studied Coptic before, and so they had an easier time um, translating the demotic. Exactly. But hieroglyphics was a very persistent mystery. And one of the reasons for that was that a 5th century scholar, a a Greek scholar named Harapolo, Mm -hmm. put out the idea that hieroglyphics were characters representative of symbols or allegories. And so, I mean, think about it. If if someone told you Mm -hmm. that... Um, little white dogs were representative of all things evil. It would be really, really hard for you to shake the idea that little white dogs were bad. Like, mm-hmm. no matter how you tried to change your ideology and your way of thinking, you would always have in the back of your mind, stay away from little white dogs. And that's what scholars were encountering mm-hmm. as they went through this interpretation process, was that hieroglyphics translated to symbols and allegories. So they took this Harapolo's idea and ran with it, and they just assumed this was right, that that so one character represents an idea, basically. And it's not, it, they assumed that it was not like English, for instance, which had an alphabet where letters have a sound attached to them. But that's exactly what it was. Yeah. And no one figured that out until years later. Mm-hmm. So running with this idea that hieroglyphics represent symbols, but Thomas Young came along in 1814 and he discovered the cartouche, which was a 
essentially a loop around a group of hieroglyphic letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he realized that only proper names were the ones in a cartouche because he was able to discern the name Ptolemy. And he knew that from, you know, the Ptolemaic rulers who had, rulers who had come in and he knew that they would have, you know, somehow been signified and mentioned in a governmental decree. Mm-hmm. So that set the standard for looking for cartouches. Yeah, and but it, he was still working on Halapulu's um, hypothesis, so he couldn't really go much further than, than that. Right. Mm-hmm. So he was very limited. Well, along comes Napoleon, and he knew from a very, very young age that he was destined for something great. And people knew what hieroglyphics were, mm-hmm. and they knew that no one had mastered them. Like, it was very much a challenge that yeah. I think people aspired to. And sort of a patriotic challenge, too, because like you said, Thomas Young, he was a, he was actually British. And so he was fighting to um, translate the hieroglyphics first for, for England, you know, um, and Champollion was, was French. And because they found it, they, they want, really wanted to translate it first, too. And he was a very, very serious scholar, almost like the Albert Einstein of, of France at this time. He was very withdrawn. He was sort of erratic in his behavior. He was considered sort of an unusual character. And even at birth, people said he looked like he was Egyptian because he had, you know, a darker skin tone and his eyes were a little bit more more yellowish looking. He didn't look like a Frenchman. And, um, so he was destined for this. He was destined for this. And I think that there's some sort of legend that even a fortune teller came in during his childbirth and said he was going to do something really great having to do with Egypt. I don't know if that's true, but it's mm-hmm. sort of fun to think about. So his whole life, he knew that he was going to master hieroglyphics. And even to the point that his older brother had to care for him, essentially, because he wasn't feeding himself properly. Mm-hmm. He had no money. He could barely sustain his, his own life. And Well, that makes sense now, because I, I heard um, that he fainted when he actually translated he the first thing. Yeah. <laughs> he was malnourished, but yeah. his brother actually was able to keep him out of military service. He said really? that Champollion was doing a greater service to his country by trying to crack hieroglyphics mm-hmm. than he would in the military. And and good thing, too, because I don't think he would have been a very good soldier. I think he would have been pretty unhappy in that post. Yeah. And if he's a fainter, I don't think he'd last long. No, not so much. <laughs> so he's working off Thomas Young's cartouche. Mm-hmm. And he starts to see a couple of different hieroglyphic symbols that he is parsing out. And he comes up with the idea, well, what if each symbol relates to a sound. Mm-hmm. And he discovers the name Ramses yeah. using just a, a couple of figures That's and right. filling in the letters. And one of the first, his first clues was seeing this circle with with a, a dot in the middle. And he was like, you know what? That could be the sun. It mm-hmm. has, you know, he made this, this leap of, of faith that, you know, that maybe that's the sun. And he knew that in a related language that the sun, uh, the word for sun was raw. And so using the phonetic, like the sound of it, he was able to eventually find out that this name was Ramses. And I think he saw two more characters that mm-hmm. were very clearly meant to be S. Yeah. So yeah. he had R-A blank S blank S. And he and knew it was a proper name. He so knew it was a proper name. Who else would have been famous in Egypt at that time? Yeah. Ramses. And so that was it. And he fainted. Commence <laughs> fainting. There you go. Yeah. And that's not to say that after Champollion essentially translated that one name from hieroglyphics. Mm-hmm. This still was a very painstaking and laborious process people had to go through, and there were many, many things to be translated. But I think that brought about a lot of excitement sure. because now Egypt and the field of Egyptology that sprang mm-hmm. from it, it was 
a sanctified field in archaeology and history and science. It wasn't just a matter of popular culture. It was kind of sad for people who realized all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I've been selling priceless mummies <laughs> and here's what they mean. And yeah. who knows who has it now? I think mm-hmm. some of them were even uh, shipped off to Europe, ground up and um, mummified remains swallowed. That's right, like in the medieval times. Yeah, yeah so all these these artifacts were very far flung around the world, but now at last people knew what the history was. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, like you said, it was both academic and sort of a fad in, in social areas too. And so um, people were like obsessed with the culture now and, and there were fights with like the museum, like obviously England had the Rosetta Stone and, and they were also getting all the stuff that, that France had, had gotten in um, Egypt. And so there was this like academic fight. Sort of. And even to this day, people still debate mm-hmm. who the real victor is, France or, or England, because yeah. clearly Champollion was, you know, the Frenchman who ultimately discovered hieroglyphics and the key behind it with the sound corresponding to the word. Yeah. But on the other hand, Thomas Young, the Englishman, if he hadn't discovered the meaning of the cartouche, where would Champollion have been without that? True. So um, I think they debate back and forth today. And I think that um, the Rosetta Stone also went on display in France for mm-hmm. a while for a celebration of its discovery. And yeah. there were rumors that the French were plotting to, to steal it. And, and even today, I think that Egypt is opening up a museum mm-hmm. in the not too distant future and they'd wanted to bring the Rosetta Stone home to display it. That's right. I mean, it's understandable. Like, like you see England and France or whatever uh, fighting over this and you're like, hey, it's kind of ours. Yeah, <laughs> it, it came from Egypt. You stole it from us. <laughs> but because it is so heavy and, and fragile and unwieldy, it would be very difficult to transport it. So I think yeah. that discussion is still in the works mm-hmm. and we shall see what happens. In the interim, you can find out more about ancient Egypt, modern Egypt, ancient civilizations in general, and the Rosetta Stone on HowStuffWorks.com. And you can also find out more about how encryption works at another HowStuffWorks podcast called Tech Stuff. You can find on iTunes today. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grinding and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Soma and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. I just realized that the first letter of every line of this review <laughs> spells help me. <laughs> it seems like everyone's a critic these days, blessing the world with our slightest opinions, all on our own mini platforms. I'm Scott Janovitz. And I'm Greg Conley. We're the hosts of Citizen Critic, a new podcast where we critique the critics and review the reviews of your favorite movies, music, television, toasters, toiletries, and paint colors. Listen to Citizen Critic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.